Welcome to Top 5, a show where we count things down from number 5 all the way to number 1. And this week, Matthew and I are going to go through our Top 5 comic book writers. Now, keep in mind, we may have done this topic before, although I couldn't find anything about it. I don't think we have. But at the same time, only 5? I know, right? I'm like, God, I, I could do 20. And I'm like, well, wait. Now I'm like worried about whether I'm being, you know, fair and decent and honest. And I'm like, if we could do 12, I could get everybody I could, cool in there. But five? I could do 20. Now, this was suggested by our followers over on our Discord server. Major Spoilers does have a Discord server. And we'd love for you to come over and join us and talk all about pop culture and comic books and all sorts of... I don't know what these guys are talking about this week. Sometimes I'm, I'm too busy to pop in myself, but you'll see a lot of Major Spoilers people show up in there and uh, join in on some of the conversations. Hey, look, Etrigan is is in the Discord today. Etrigan, How about that? He's not Etrigan. rhyming correctly, but there's Do Etrigan. Do whatever a demon can. He is So, Etrigan. But here's the, here's the plus side, Matthew. Mm-hmm. If you and I each had like 20, we've right. got like four episodes. That's true. Twi- you know, five more comic book writers. And I would feel so bad about leaving fave raves off the list. Leaving oh, there's guys a, there's a should lot. be on the list. My, my number five. Oh, yeah, my number five is Brian Cleffinger. And the reason why he's on this list is. I don't want to take credit for the success of Atomic Robo. But I feel like in the early days of Atomic Robo, I was the only one raving about this series until everyone picked up on it. an early adapter, yeah. And I really enjoy how Clevenger goes in and does the research on, especially if it's a, a period piece, how he's doing the research on this, how he's working with his artist or artists to uh, come up with, a, you know, the designs and how everything's going to work. I love the way he writes snarky atomic robo. I like how he creates these historical characters that you think, you know, but then at the same time, you could actually see them acting in the way that Clevenger points them out or portrays them. And I, I love everything about Atomic Robo. And since this is only about the writers, one of these days we'll have to do colorists and editors and all that stuff. Even those, uh, what are those guys with the pencils who do the The letterers, drawing? the letterers, the, and the artists. The oh, the, yeah, 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 the drawers. The, the people drawers, that, that, yeah. uh, that do all the drawers. The, uh, the drawing, yeah. Yeah. I, I've got to put Brian Clevenger on my list. I love Atomic Robo that much that of all the fantastic comic book writers out there, he lands in my number five spot. That's impressive. Yeah. What do you have for your number five? My number five is one that I was actually surprised by because I sat down and I was, you know, to break something like this down, at least for me, I felt like I had to just start listing. What are my favorite comics? Who are my favorite Mm -hmm. things? What am I doing? And a name that just kept popping up and kept popping up and kept popping up. And I'm like, wait, I didn't realize what a fan I was of Warren Ellis. Mm-hmm. because I, I actually first ran into Ellis back in the days of, uh, in the early days, I don't know if you guys remember this, you may be too young, of Image Comics. There were a bunch of weirdo books that just popped up, and one of them was a book called Stormwatch. And Stormwatch was basically, what if Jim Lee created the satellite-era Justice League? Yeah. And Stormwatch was pretty tame, pretty middle of the road. Occasionally they'd have a murder or a sexual assault or something, but there came a point, in Stormwatch, where it handed off to this new writer, this Ellis kid, and Warren Ellis was a name that at the time I only knew from a book at Marvel called Ruins. Mm-hmm. If you've ever read Ruins, it's basically like Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross's Marvels, only reversed where everything is terrible. Oh, no. But uh, 
Stormwatch all of a sudden became cool. It became interesting. And they introduced uh, the character of Jenny Sparks, who is this mm-hmm. uh, crazy British lady who's the spirit of the 20th century. And a character called Rose Tattoo, who is like the living embodiment of murder in the universe. And then it turned into The Authority. The book literally transformed into something entirely different. And when you read that book, you're like, oh, my God. Oh, that's amazing. And then I was thinking about, you know, the stuff that he's done with other characters. And Warren has a tendency to do his own books, kind of in a similar to Mark Miller, only good uh, kind of thing. <laughs> be nice. But Warren, I will be. I will. Uh, Warren did Transmetropolitan. If you've mm-hmm. ever read Transmet, that's crazy. At one point, he actually took over the X books, some of the X books. He took over X Factor and X Force and like Deadpool and turned them into something entirely different. And it was crazy. I think that uh, the one thing that Warren Ellis did that I never really got into was Crossed simply because, yeah. dear God. Actually, that may be Garth Ennis now that I think about it. But they did one of my favorite books of the 90s and 2000s, Planetary. And Planetary was basically a book that posited what if all the fictional characters existed in the same universe, kind of in the same realm as League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Mm -hmm. But what if uh, some of them were jerks and it was all in modern times? And Planetary is just amazing. Um, and he did a run on Hellblazer, which, of course, is a series that's near and dearer to my heart. He did a really, really impressive run on Hellblazer, including the issue that DC refused to publish for like 10 years that came out. And it was like, holy crap, that's amazing. So Warren Ellis, very British, uh, very esoteric. Not quite as esoteric as other names that I'm absolutely certain will be showing up on your list and mine later, but definitely somebody you want to look into. If you see Warren Ellis on the cover, you're definitely in for a good read. Very good. My number four is one that if you would have asked me 10 years ago, maybe even, yeah, 10 years ago, I would have said, screw this guy. He's the worst. He's (laughs) absolutely the worst. Doesn't know how to write a good book in to save his life. And then I realized, wait a minute. I'm going to go back and reread his stuff. I mean, I was just writing. I was, uh, what's it called? Given the, the given shade, given side eye. I was subtweeting. I was subtweeting. You were breaking the internet. You were slamming him. I, I was probably uh, subtweeting about subtweeting. my dislike for this, this writer and how much I didn't appreciate his work and what he was doing with characters and stories and just, you know, doing this ridiculous stuff. And then people are like, I think you're just being really harsh. You need to go back and reread this Batman run that you hate so much and just reread it from beginning to end. And I was like, okay, fine. I will go back and reread it from beginning to end. And you know what? It was actually really good. And then I was like, okay, I cannot wait to see what Grant Morrison does with Action Comics when the New 52 reset and we had a brand new Superman. And, you know, it was good, but it didn't make a lot of sense because you're reading Grant Morrison one chapter once a month. And Grant Morrison really works best when you can read the entirety of his story in one go or at least at your own pace and not someone else's pace. Because once you read Grant Morrison in his entire run of something like uh, whatever the uh, uh, the Batman run was, his entire run, 
with RIP, uh, I think. Yeah, whatever that run Actually, was. Actually, it was before RIP, before and after. He did the stuff around Final Crisis. Too. Yeah. Yeah, well, in fact, he did Final Crisis, right? Didn't he do that yeah. with uh, Batman getting the bullet from the bullet from the future being sent into the past and killing Batman I and everything? I don't know that he wrote all of Final Crisis. I want to say Final Crisis was like 52. It was a group effort. Yeah, and then he also was uh, responsible for the return of the multiverse and Superman yeah. singing. Uh, you know, and shattering the oh. shattering the universe and all that stuff. He has a deep knowledge of the characters that he's writing, which maybe not all readers do have. But at the same time, he puts things in like chapter one of a 24 part story that doesn't make sense until you hit chapter 23. And then you're like, <laughs> oh, oh, OK. But if, but if you're reading that, you know, over the course of two years, you may not remember that because you're reading, you know, 500 comics a month. But, uh, you know, I've kind of changed my mind on Grant Morrison. I actually look forward to stuff that Grant Morrison is is writing. Uh, I look forward to, you know, maybe not reading it a month at a time, but definitely reading it in a collection so I can sit and go, oh, OK, so this is what he's doing here. Ah, here's where it comes back around again. I didn't have to wait two years to find out. So therefore, I'm not mad. I'm actually in awe over what he's doing with the foreshadowing and the referencing and the calling back to things that happened previously. It's just really, really good. And so Grant Morrison, 10 years ago, would never have put him on my list. Today, he's at my number four. Yeah, he's really amazing, and he's, you know... He's also out he, there. He also is is thinking he, on a higher level freely, than the rest of us. He's freely admitted that he has written stories solely as mystical spells that he wants to put out into the universe Yeah, to, to change the nature of reality, which I think is is maybe a little bit scary, but also fascinating. Oh, no, it's it's totally fascinating. Believe me, when when it got to whatever series that was where Superman is singing at the end to save the universe, and mm-hmm. I, I'm just like... And then you read this stuff about the way he thinks and what he's trying to do spiritually and meta- metaphysically and all that stuff. All of a sudden, you're just like, wow, this is really deep. And you kind of really want to read it to see if you are unlocking some spell or mystery of the universe that he's discovered on one of his uh, one of his sandwich, sandwich trips. Sandwich trips. Yeah. The thing that's really great about Morrison and the thing that I will always give him four stars for, he brought back. Uh, the Batman of Planet X. Right. Pla- Batman, Batman of Zero R. Yeah. Made it work, put it all together, threw in Batmite just mm-hmm. to really tick off the idiot fans and yep. made a great story. Oh, he, he ticked me off. Believe me. But then you, again, read it from, read it all in one sitting and then you'll be like, oh, wow. Okay. I neat. don't think of you as an idiot fan. Your idiot side and your fan side are separate. <laughs> Bite me with your number four, Matthew. Well, it's fascinating that your number four is who it is, because my number four has, for probably the last 15 or 20 years, been feuding with your number four. Oh, really? Uh, Not just feuding, but in fact, counterspelling each other with stories that they're writing. My number four is the man who made Swamp Thing amazing. My number four is the man who created Halo Jones, the man who created Watchmen, the man who created V for Vendetta. I'm talking, of course, about the original writer. Um, that is actually the way he is credited at both Marvel and DC in recent years. Oh, because, because he's so fed up. Burn. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the original writer is uh, an English writer who comes around in 1982, 83, Alan Moore. Um, but the thing of, that I really love about the original writer is there's a tendency in comics to come in and say, 
we're going to smash everything you know, and it's going to turn into something new and weird and different. And the thing that I love about the original artist is I'm going to come in and acknowledge everything you know and still turn it into something wild and new and different. That first issue of Swamp Thing, actually the second issue of Swamp Thing, uh, The Anatomy Lesson, takes everything you know about Swamp Thing, completely turns it on its head. It doesn't negate any of the previous stories, but it says everything that you know was wrong in a way that's fascinating and engaging and makes you want to know what happened, how did we get here. Mm -hmm. And around 1999... Uh, the original artist and many of his collaborators ended up over at uh, Wildstorm Publishing doing the America's Best Comics line. Love that series. If you haven't read ABC, you need to read ABC. It's some of the best comics of the modern age. And it's got, I think, not just a love letter to a certain creator or time period or era. I mean, you'll see we love Silver Age or we love Superman in 1975. We love the X-Men in the 80s. This was a book, a line of books, actually, that said, we love everything about comics, and here's why. And it showed you some really fascinating, wonderful things that you never, ever thought to think about comics. But if you go and you pick up, even if you pick up the most obvious work, if you pick up Watchmen, the thing about Watchmen is it's complex enough that everybody gets the message wrong. I'm not mentioning any names, but especially Jeff Johns. Uh, you get that message wrong, but you still love the story. And when you go in looking at it and you say, what's the deal here? Watchmen is actually a book that's all about failure. They're not superheroes. This is actually meant to be something in a real world setting. And it's one of the rare times that someone has said, I'm going to do a real world setting that wasn't either boring or not the real world in any way at all. You know, the new universe claimed it was the real world, and immediately we had alternate dimensions and aliens from space and psychic powers and people walking around in other people's dreams. And you're like, that's not the world outside my window. That's messed up. But if you don't know the work of Alan Crowland, the original artist, more, you really should because he's one of those characters. And I say characters, but I literally mean he's one of those characters who travels through comics and he is very, very, um, polarizing. I think yep. is a good word. I think that's a good, good way for it. Yeah. There, I mean, there are stories that I don't recommend. I don't recommend lost girls to that's everyone. Very, that is very adult. It's, it's, it's very, very adult. I mean, it's, it's one that's yeah. on the top shelf in the back, uh, where it's, it says adults only. It's not just very adult. It is a very specific thing. It is basically, Instead of what if Watchmen, we're going to do all these characters who are clearly recognizable. It is what if Victorian pornography uh, were a crossover comic book. And that's, you know, that's a thing. That's fascinating to read. And if you're a grown up and you have, you know, the stomach for such matters, I would recommend it. But I'm not going to recommend it to you. And if you look at things like From Hell, which I don't know if it ever finished, and Big Numbers, which I know didn't finish, there are times when it feels like, he's biting off a little more than he can chew. But even when that happens, even when something trips and falls, you know, or it doesn't get finished, like his run on miracle man, you just love it. Yeah, no, you uh, gotta go read the original writer. Yeah. From hell is interesting. I mean, it's been adapted into what's, is it, is that the, also Johnny the name Depp. of the Johnny Depp movie is yeah. from hell. Yeah. It's really good. I mean, his stuff is really, really good. 
definitely not a surprise that it is on uh, your list, Matthew. Well, it had to fight with your number four. I know, right? Because uh, isn't uh, isn't Alan Moore? Isn't he? Uh, he's not. Is he Wiccan? What is he? Uh, I believe Pagan? he is he's... an anarchist wizard. That's what cultist. That, maybe I don't know that's if he is. identifies as as uh, Wiccan specifically. Yeah, I don't know. But I is... know that there's there's an issue of Promethea that is literally a magic spell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Far out, and, man. Yeah, it is interesting. And of course, you know, if you've ever seen Morrison and uh, the original writer in full in real life, Morrison is completely shaved from the head up, and the original writer is like <laughs> nothing but hair from the. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's it's like they're they're perfectly balanced opposites. They're the yin and the yang of comic book craziness, and it's wonderful. Yep. My number three is I think the success story that everyone who wants to work in comics, uh, th- it, this is her story. She was a hairdresser, loved comics, started submitting uh, works to different places, uh, started writing Women in Refrigerators over at CBR uh, years ago. And that's where she came up with the the idea of the Women in Refrigerators uh, following the Green Lantern uh, issue. And then she ended up starting to write in comic books. Uh, I think one of her first ones was for, oh, man, I, I couldn't even tell you one of her first Deadpool uh, pieces was of work. very early. Yeah, Deadpool was very early. The first, I know the first stuff she did was for Bongo. Uh, yeah, yeah, with Simpsons. the Simpsons. Yeah, she was writing Simpsons for years. And then finally she was given a crack, and this is where I think I discovered her, although I probably do remember the Bongo comics Simpsons stuff uh, back in the day. But volume two of Birds of Prey was just like, what is this? This is not what I was expecting. It's It's funny. It's got action, it's got romance, it's got fat Ted Cord in it. <laughs> and it's just something about the way Gail Simone wrote Birds of Prey just clicked with me. Now, I'm g- I'm going to say this. I don't love all of Gail's stuff. Um what was that one uh crazy series where they were trying to create the new breed of superheroes? Maybe it's Tranquility. Welcome to Tranquility was the one about the retirement community. No, then that wasn't it. It was the one about these teenage superheroes living in the slums. You and oh, I reviewed it on was, the Doom uh, Review podcast. The yeah, the movement. I did not care for the movement. I love Gail Simone when she writes Red Sonia. I yeah. love it when she uh, does her own stuff with um, uh, Leaving Megalopolis. It was really a, a cool book. Clean Room is just terrifying. The Clean Room is just terrifying. Her all-new Adam run was another one that just makes you want to jump up and cheer and and just love every bit of it. Her Wonder Woman She's, stuff is, is really good. She is the reason why anyone loves Ryan Troy. She is the reason why anyone loves The Secret Six. <laughs> nope. She's, she's the reason why everyone loves The Secret Six. <laughs> well, I love The Secret Six she's, before her. She's the, reason, she's the reason why Catman is actually somebody. Okay. I'm the cat man. If you don't follow Gail on Twitter, you should. If you're someone who gets um, easily offended, don't, uh, follow, Gail don't on follow Gail on Twitter because <laughs> I, I like Gail because, and I've told this story before. Matthew and I went to Planet Comic Con years ago where Gail was there. Still mad at you. I know, but... And right next to the table was um, Francesco Francavilla. So, you know, when we get to our favorite artist, I'll get to tell this story again. And I was, I'll be, I'll admit, I was super nervous going up to Gail Simone and introducing myself and telling her hi and all this stuff. But I went to Frank, Francesco Francavilla and I was like, oh, you know, major spoilers. Like, oh my God, I love your stuff. Oh, you guys are so good. Oh, you guys don't do all these things that I hate that all the other sites do. And he just, 
is a fantastic person. And then when Gail's table cleared up, I went over there and she's like, oh, you guys are the best. I love you guys. And so I follow her on Twitter. She follows me on Twitter. Sometimes we message back and forth, especially when I'm like, Gail, what are you doing trying to trigger some of these people to get all up in arms? And she's doing it just for fun because she knows it's going to upset somebody. And that's part of the fun of following Gail Simone on Twitter, whether she is intentionally making fun of Arrow and saying that she knows everything about Elicity that no one else does. And people come at her and going, no, Cyclops has force beams or heat beams or whatever that the argument is. And she'll be like, nope, that's not it. Or her latest run with uh, with uh, how British people make property in the microwave. Uh, It's just literally it is so much fun. I am so glad that the comic book industry has someone like Gail in it who, you know, I, th- I do think at times there are things that bother her and affect her, but at the same time, she kind of lets a lot of it just roll off her back and she uses her anger to her advantage, I guess. I don't want to say it's her anger because I've never really talked to her about that. Right. But she uses, I will say her anger to her advantage to provide the the appropriate commentary where necessary. And she's a good writer. She is a great writer. And that's why Gail Simone is on my number three list. She's just a fantastic person. Nobody does heartfelt character interaction like Gail Simone. Oh yeah. In a good, in a good Gail Simone story, I'll be crying by the end of the issue. And, and she does, she does really great surprises too in her stories where things you don't see coming. So there you go. A little Gail Simone story. Also, Gail, my number three. Matthew, what do you have for number three? My number three is based on a very important rule that I have about comics. And this is the rule. I'm going to state this rule. And if you're listening to this show, I want you to take this rule and I want you to tattoo it on your chest. I can't do that. The, no, you can't. The rule goes like this, Stephen. Comic books existed before 1995. No way. Uh, I go on the internet and I see people going, the greatest Batman stories ever told, and not a single one of them predates the crisis on infinite earths. You go and you're like, Hey, the greatest moments in comics. And they're all from the last five years. And you cannot write about the best writers in comics without taking into account the year 1930, something, something dark side, a year When a guy had created a dude with a cape and they were like, hey, this Superman dude, this is selling. Let's do more of these. And they're like, "Okay, well, here's another one. This one's a bat. And they're like, well, what else can we do? And this voice rang out from the din and it said, what about a guy who goes fast? What about a guy with wings? What about a guy with magic hat? What about a guy who has a gas mask on for some reason? And that voice was Gardner Fox. Gardner Fox was one of DC's longest tenured writers, created mm-hmm. the Justice League of America, mm-hmm. co-created the Flash, Hawkman, Dr. Fate, the Sandman, co-created the Justice Society of America. I mean, this is a writer who basically codified everything that we know about comics today. That thing where the heroes all come together and you have a team, that's Gardner. There were no super teams in comics 
before that happened. That thing where you're like, oh, well, here's a bunch of heroes and they're going to split off into teams and then they're going to go do individual missions and come together at the end and fight the total foe. That's Gardner. That thing where each character has something weird and interesting that they can't do, whether it be a weakness to wood or a yellow impurity in their ring or uh, fire, I don't know. That's Gardner. It's not entirely Gardner, but it's partly Gardner. And if you go back to the very beginning of DC Comics, you will find Gardner Fox all the way through. You'll find Gardner Fox in the creation of so many concepts that today we take for granted. If you see it on the CW five nights a week, there's a really good chance that Gardner is the reason why. Green Arrow was brought into the Justice League of America in 1960-something-something by this writer because he was just kind of struggling out there as a silly Batman knockoff, and now he's got his own TV show. You know, The Flash was like, oh, he's the guy with the hubcap on his head, and Julie Schwartz was like, you know, what if he wasn't, though? And in 1954, they're like, okay, how about a new, entirely new age of comics? We're going to start a new age of comics. Actually, what they said was, Gardner, can you do something fun? And he created Barry Allen the Flash. I mean, seriously, if you like comics and you don't know who Gardner Fox is, I think you owe it to yourself to go check out his work. And he wrote all the way into the late 70s, right around the early 80s, I want to say. Uh, the Batman sh TV show that mm -hmm. came from the New Look Batman comics of 1964. Guess who was there, dude? Uh, Gardner Fox. Gardner Fox. Oh, I did it. Yeah. I mean, seriously, if you if you don't know who Gardner Fox is, I entreat you. I implore you. I Other words that start with I, you, to go out, find out, look up this stuff and say, holy moly, what the heck? How did I not know this? You know what else he created? Red uh, Wolf. A, a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> Red Wolf. Yeah. You know who Red Wolf is? Yeah. Neither is anybody else, but Gardner Fox created him, baby. And that's why he's my number three. <laughs> So years and years and years ago, this had been the early 90s, I was uh, stuck in this college town during the summer and the town just empties out. There's nobody around during the summer. And I would find myself quite a bit going down to our comic book shop and picking up trades and going through back issues and just trying to find something to occupy my time because I did not have a TV. I had a radio which you can only listen to so much, especially when you're working at said radio station. Uh, but uh, I didn't have a television. So my thing was, I'm going to read and I'm going to read comic books and I'm going to try to pick up as many things as I can. And I was never before that summer. It was probably like 91. I want to say maybe. Uh, yeah. Uh, I had not read a lot of other DC stuff that was not Batman and sometimes Superman stuff. Uh, but I suddenly decided, oh, I'm going to start picking up this Flash book and start reading some of these stories of the Flash. I've seen him in some crossover stuff with other characters. And this issue just happened to be written by Mark Wade. And I was like, well, this is a very kind of cool story. And as Mark Wade, as I continued to read the Flash and read more of what Mark Wade was writing... I'm like, oh, man, he's really building a world here. Here is the return of, of Jay Garrick. Here is this Max Mercury character. Here is Johnny and Jesse Quick. And then he then all of a sudden, and I, I think this was something that DC kind of got in their mind that they would do. Well, really, a lot of comic books were doing this, but they were creating intertidal connectivities 
on a monthly basis. Uh, over in the Superman comics, you know, you had to read Superman, you had to read action comics, you had to read, what was the, uh, was it, I don't think Supergirl was a series by herself at that time. No, but Adventures of Superman. Oh, Adventures of Superman, that's what it was. There's like, there were, I remember there were like three or four different Superman titles, and they came out every week, you know, they alternated, uh, you know, they came out once a month, but came out weekly, so that you had four stories to read about Superman, and... The same thing was going on with Legion of Superheroes when they started doing that, Legion of Superheroes and uh, Legionnaires. That was something that flip-flopped back and forth. And Mark Wade had his own thing when he introduced the character Impulse. And I remember going back and finding the, uh, going back into the back issue bins, I think it was that summer, and finding like the first two or three issues of Impulse and going, oh man, this is really cool. And just really diving into everything that Mark Wade had written at that time. Uh, Kingdom Come wouldn't come out until 97. Um... That was a few years later, and I forget what else uh, that he was he was writing specifically in the early 90s. But when AOL finally came on to the scene, <laughs> you guys remember AOL? This is like this would have been like 95, 96 for me. I'm living in Atlanta. And, and suddenly the triggering of Atlanta makes me realize that I left off another writer on my list that I should put on here. So we're definitely going to come back and revisit this again. Somerset Mom. Was it Somerset Mom? No, it was Bill William. Uh, but, um, I remember going through and getting into one of the comic book forums and suddenly there was this guy, Mark Wade, that was there. And I was like, this can't be the same guy. And I was like, you know, I reached out to him. How does he was posting his email address? And so I wrote out to Mark Wade and I said, Hey, are you the same Mark Wade that is writing impulse and the flash? And he's like, well, yes, yes, I am. And I was like, I've always been fascinated. And this is back in the early days where the only places you could actually find comic book scripts were in like Comic Writer Magazine, which were kind of hard to find. Uh, but I was like, is there any chance you could send me a script of, you know, an issue that you've written? And he's like, oh, here, here's my latest impulse uh, script that I'll send to you. And I was like, well, this is far out now. Granted, the, uh, the issue had been out for a couple of months, so it wasn't like he was giving away anything. Brand new issue, man. Yeah, but I was just like, wow, this is really cool. And you know, learning to see how a script is formatted for comic book form, or at least in the way that he was doing it. And he seemed like a very uh, cool person. And and even when Major Spoiler started, uh, Mark Wade has always been, I don't want to say a friend of Major Spoilers. Uh, Mark Wade has always been someone who is, what's the word? Uh, fair with major spoilers. He's been on. He's we've interviewed him multiple times on the major spoilers podcast. Uh, you can go back into the the record books and see that. And he's always very friendly to what we do, and he appreciates the things that we do. And I think he understands that we have a love of comics like he does. But at the same time, we love comics, and Mark Wade does too. At the same time, if you looked at my DMs from Mark Wade, um, he's also super critical of what we do. You know, he'll call me out on stuff. He'll be like, I can't believe you did that, man. You're better than this. And we'll have a we'll have a very in-depth discussion about, you know, what he's mad about now and, uh, you know, why he you know, why he's thinking the way he does. And sometimes I will agree with him and say, you know what? You're right. I, we do need to be better than what we have been. And we don't need to do these kinds of things. So it's all and I don't want to say it's like a mentor, but he's he has actually kind of served that kind of role for major spoilers 
in an unofficial capacity. Now, don't now don't uh, I'm not trying to say that, hey, Mark Wade and I are chatting all the time because Mark Wade and I have maybe your, your close personal friend, Mark Wade. No, I mean, you out. have you have a closer personal relationship <laughs> with Kurt Busick than I do with Mark Wade. Mark Wade and I maybe interact maybe once a year or once every two years. But he's always there to provide some wisdom and to provide some insight. He's got a super in-depth knowledge of everything going on in the DC universe. And I'm sure Marvel, too. He just loves comics. He was the EIC at Boom Studios for a long time. Uh, He has written some fantastic stuff, some stuff that I really love. Now, again, as we talked about when he was on our show many years ago, he's written some stuff that maybe hasn't always worked perfectly. Third run of Legion of Superheroes. Uh, But I think he's a really solid writer and he knows what works in his mind. And I think for a lot of people, it works as well. Now, I know a lot of people also don't like Mark Wade, and that's fine because of his personal attitude and uh, things that he may do or say. But uh, I think he's a pretty fantastic writer. And that's why Mark Wade is number two on my list. Yeah. Matthew, who do you have for number two? Well, as you'll recall, my number three had a massive list of important and influential characters he created. Mm -hmm. My number two basically has one, but the strength of that one major influential uh, creation, I think, cannot be underestimated in modern comics. Because if you look at modern comics and you look at the metatextual ways that comics are interacting, if you look at Deadpool, especially the movie version of Deadpool, if you look at the takes on things that we are seeing now, the entirety of the new 52, yeah, everything that Marvel has done post-Secret Wars, all of this is definitely springing from a well which rolled down a mountain from the works of Steve Gerber. Yeah, And his primary creation, Howard the Duck. Howard was a very personal, very modern, very important creation. You know, people mock, oh, that movie was terrible. Well, maybe it was. I blame that on George Lucas. A lot of things that George (laughs) Lucas does are terrible. But here's the thing about Steve Gerber. Steve Gerber really pioneered writing a very personal story, Steve Gerber pioneered a lot of the things that we see in modern stories. And Steve Gerber was a master of um, what certain vocal chunks of fandom are like calling the modern, new, stupid SJW issues in comics. I don't want politics in my comics. Well, you haven't been reading very soon, very often, or very long, if you think that's true. And you certainly haven't been reading Gerber, because Gerber would take moments and hit you in the face with them and still make it work. There's a Mm -hmm. a 10-issue run, circa 1977, of a book called Omega the Unknown. One of the best things that Marvel ever put out. Doesn't have a good ending, but it's a really great book. And if you read it... I think it will transform the way you think about comics specifically, but shared universe comics more specifically. And anything that Gerber touches is weird in all the best ways. Gerber invented, you you know the Guardians of the Galaxy, right? I do know the Guardians of the Galaxy. And you know how the Guardians of the Galaxy have that one member who is a guy and his wife merged into one guy and also an Arcturan hawk god from space who can see the future and tells you what's going to happen because he, he lives in a stable time loop? Uh, let's say yes. Okay. All of that, Gerber. You know how Howard is a duck from I duck do know world? that. I do know and that. You know, 
You know how Howard showed up on Earth and hung out with a guy made of plants and a barbarian who stepped out of a peanut butter jar well, and I, an ancient wizard? I know he hung out with Leah Thompson. He did hang out with Leah Thompson. That was also George Lucas's fault. Because, you know, post uh, Back to the Future, she was super hot. Um, but really, uh, Gerber is one of the few comic book writers that I've actually met in person. I met him at uh, an earlier version of the same convention that Stephen was talking about meeting Gail Simone at. And I walked in and I'm like, hey, you're Steve Gerber. And he's like, yeah, I am. And I stood there and I hung out and I talked to him. And there wasn't anybody there that day. And the people that were there weren't talking to Steve Gerber. So I got to talk to Gerber for a good long time. And then I got to go around and find a copy of Adventure into Fear number 15, which is the first appearance of Howard the Duck, and take it back to Gerber and have Steve sign it. And a complete run of Sludge, which is a book that he did for Malibu that nobody remembers. Sign them all, baby. <laughs> I really, really love Steve Gerber's work. And if you are one of those people who says, hey, I really want complex adult storytelling, and I don't want them to feed me weird pablum stories. I don't want it to be meaningless Batman punches somebody in the face. Definitely look up Gerber. He's also, very importantly, the creator of Dr. Bong. No, oh, Dr. Bong. <laughs> the the Dr. original Bong. Dr. Bong or... Uh... The the actual original Dr. Bong, okay. one Lester Verde, the favorite hero of uh, Major Spoiler's own Chris Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. Not really even a hero, but you don't argue with Wilson. He's, he's kind of scary, and I think he has a knife. But that's why Steve Kerber is my number two. You can't argue with, uh, with a guy who created a sentient bong. A sentient? He's, he's Dr. Bong, dude. I know. Right, 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 right. Uh, we have reached our number ones, and I know my number one is going to be very controversial because Matthew hated it the minute that I mentioned it to him. Oh, I hate you now. I know, but that's nothing new. I mean, we've known each other for over 30 years, so. Well, that's true. 30 years of hate. I should be used to that by now, but still I cry myself I to sleep every night. Stephen's hair was Why full won't he seven just inches like high. Me? Uh... Seven inches high it stood. It would brush so the top. So I have, so, okay, so here's the thing, Matthew. You... I think maybe you'll change my your, your mind a little bit about my number one mm -hmm. when I tell you that I've never been a huge Marvel fan. Okay. Never a big X-Men fan. Never really read Spider-Man because it was so complex. There was so much history going on with it. Uh, maybe I would pick up a Hulk every once in a while. I tried to get into X-Men in the 90s. That was maybe a mistake. <laughs> you think? Well, I mean, in hindsight, yeah. At the time, I was just like trying to follow your 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 recommendation of, ah, just read it. Eventually, it will all make sense. And it's like, Mondo World? No, this doesn't make any sense. So I was really not a Marvel fan. There's also some teenage drama or preteen drama uh, that, that kept me away from Marvel. But finally, in the early 2000s, I was like, you know what? I'm kind of... All up on everything with DC. I think probably at the time I may have been buying every book that DC was putting out. And I still wanted to read more. And I was like, well, you know what? I should probably try and give Marvel a chance. I would really like to get into Spider-Man. But man, there is so much history. So much to unpack with Spider-Man. I don't know if I could ever get to a place where I would be comfortable trying to read Spider-Man on a weekly basis and know all the ins and outs. And then I see that there is this series that Marvel has been releasing called Ultimate Spider-Man. And Ultimate Spider-Man takes place in a different universe. Mm -hmm. Same same characters, slightly twisted. We're 
taking Peter Parker back to the to the good old days, to his origins, and we're telling his origin story from the beginning, and we're retelling a lot of your favorite Spider-Man tales in a new way for a new audience, for a new generation who want to who have always heard about the death of Gwen Stacy or have always heard about Craven's uh, Last Hunt, but never really got into it. And I was like, okay, let me just go and pick up, you know, these little single paperback trades. And yes, I know Brian Michael Bendis can be wordy. But there was something about that Ultimate Spider-Man that I could not put down. So much so that uh, when my wife and I first went to the San Diego Comic-Con, we specifically packed like six or no, the first eight trades of Ultimate Spider-Man so that we could read on our flight to California. And we both just would, I would read the first one, then I'd hand it to her while I read the second one. She was reading the first one, and we just kept doing that through, for the entire flight. And we got through that entire eight-volume run of The Ultimate Spider-Man. And I continued to read Ultimate Spider-Man. I didn't know anything about Jessica Jones. I didn't know anything about, uh, what else was he doing at the time, besides Alias? Um... Yeah, I can't think of anything else he was doing at that. Oh, oh no, no, he was doing. He was doing. Um, was it Empowered? Is that the series? No, Powers. He was doing Powers, powers. right? He was also doing Powers. So I picked that up and I started reading it. And you know, Brian Michael Bendis got me into the Marvel universe. I would not have. I would not have finally gotten into the Marvel universe had it not been for Brian Michael Bendis, because then I have a point of reference to say, okay, Matthew, let's talk about Carnage. Here's how it's portrayed in Ultimate Spider-Man. Tell me how it was portrayed in the original series. And we have a point that we can talk and we can see where there are similarities and where there are differences. And I like Brian Michael Bendis' writing. I cannot wait, as of this recording, his first issue of the Legion of Superheroes has not arrived. I have really enjoyed his Superman run that he's been doing with the, uh, with the underground uh, evil people trying to take over Metropolis and uh, Superman and the rest are trying to figure out what's going on. I have really enjoyed that series. I like Brian Michael Bendis's writing. I'm putting him as my number one, Matthew, just because of things that he has done to make me look at comic books in a different way. Makes me go and start reading more independent comics, although I've read independent comics my entire life, but really make me get into uh, what Icon was doing, then that was bought up by what, Marvel? Mm-hmm. Or was originally at Marvel. I don't know where Powers was originally at. I, uh, Powers was actually originally from Image, Image. Yeah, Image. And ended up at Icon. Icon is Marvel's creator. Yeah, the creator-owned series. So yeah, I'm reading stuff from Image, Brian Michael Bendis' stuff there. Uh, I am really digging it. And I was just turned on. Uh, Kevin Smith actually recommended a Brian Michael Bendis book the other day. Uh, that's kind of an autobiographical tale of him trying to get a television series made and flying to Hollywood, I think, for the first time to pitch a story. So I'm, I'm very interested in reading that. But when this topic came up, the first one that popped in my mind was Brian Michael Bendis. So therefore, he must have been my number one. And there you go. That's my number one favorite comic book writer as of right now, Brian Michael Bendis. But as I've said, there's probably 20 others that aren't on my list that we will get to in future episodes. I have always said that Brian Michael Bendis is one of America's comic book writers. And that's why my number one is Brian Brian Michael Bendis. Ooh, I've got the hiccups. You got the hiccups. Okay. Well, you hiccup over there. I'm going to tell you about some of the goofiest stuff in the known universe. There are, there are levels of, of writer 
where you come in and you're like, I really love the world building and the characters and the depth that Kurt Busick puts into everything he does. And I really love how John Byrne can tie up a whole bunch of weird things together and make it work. And I really love how Chris Claremont can keep 15 different backburner plots a roll in with all of these different people. I really love how Kelly Sue DeConnick puts me inside the head of all of her characters. I really love a lot of comic book readers, but writers rather. I like readers too. If you're listening right now, I love you. That's right. I do. I feel your pain, but probably not the best impression to use. I don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, my number one is actually a writer who died before I ever picked up a comic book, a writer whose work I had heard of, but not really thought of a writer who I was like, oh, yeah, just another guy. I know the name and I know the stuff, and I'm not really fond of his art. And then Otter Disaster, uh, my friend Otter, whom I've known for uh, as long as I've known Steven, started just gushing, gushing about this creator. And I'm like, well, how much did he write? And I went out and I found maybe four dozen comics. And I'm like, well, what is so awesome about this guy? And then I started doing my digging and I started realizing that, are you familiar, Stephen, with a character called Wonder Woman? Um, the name sounds familiar. Yeah. I heard they made he, a movie about her a few years yeah. ago. He didn't create her. Mm, but Okay. There are a lot of people in the universe who say Wonder Woman was the first female superhero. They are wrong. The first female superhero was Phantoma. Phantoma was written and drawn by Barclay Flagg. Now, Barclay Flagg is a pseudonym uh, for a person that does not exist, but it is a pseudonym for perhaps the greatest comic book writer of all time. And I say that realizing that it sounds like hyperbole, but I really mean probably is Fletcher Hanks. Oh, man, this guy is nuts. He as soon is as you said Fletcher- Otter's name, as soon as you said Otter's name, I'm like, oh, my God, this has got to be Fletcher Hanks. There are a lot of takes on comics, and Fletcher Hanks' take on comics was all powerful heroes punishing the guilty in gruesomely, increasingly wonderful ways. Um, I used to love Wrath of the Spectre, which is a book from the 1970s where DC's superhero comic, The Spectre, he used to be a superhero, and then he started killing people. He transformed a guy into stone and chopped him up. And he did all of these wacky things. And I'm like, oh, well, this is unlike anything I've ever read. And then I read Fletcher Hanks. Oh, man, this Fletcher stuff is Hanks. bizarre, is, is an understatement. Is amazing. Yeah. And, of course, this is early enough. His first work on uh, Stardust, the Super Wizard, perhaps mm-hmm. his, his foremost character, came in 1939, the very, very dawn of the golden age of comics. There were no rules because Fletcher Hanks was writing the rules as they went And Stardust is amazing. There are actually collections of all the Stardust stories. I believe it's called I Shall Destroy All Civilized Planets. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you can get a hold of that, or if you can find Fletcher Hanks, I always go to the Digital Comic Museum. Yeah, I was going to say, it's it's all online. Everything that Fletcher Hanks has done is in the public domain. Oh my gosh, this stuff is wild. It's crazy. It's inventive. It's... A little bit bloody here and there. It's definitely something that I would say is all ages reading because a nine-year-old kid will be like, that guy's head just exploded. 
Whereas, you know, someone who is into the works of Marcel Proust will be like, wow, the deep themes of this story are completely engaging me on both an emotional and a metaphysical physical level. And that guy's head just exploded. You can't hate Fletcher Hanks. You cannot hate a, a writer who puts so much visceral enjoyment into the book. And for all I know, Fletcher hated writing comics and didn't want to do it and everything is terrible. No one's entirely sure what happened when he left comics in 1941. They're not inter entirely sure the rest of his life, what happened. But apparently, and this is true, Fletcher Hanks in 1976 froze to death without a penny to his name. And they found him frozen in a park. Yeah. And that's a horrible, horrible way to go, especially for someone who did create some of the most joyful comics ever and comics that you need to go and you need to check them out. Even if you just go and say, Hey, where can I get a copy of you shall die by your own evil creation? Ask your local comic book shop and they'll look at you and go, have you been listening to major spoilers again? Uh, let's see. Fantagraphics books has the complete collection of Fletcher Hanks as um, as a book, uh, for like nice. 50 bucks. So you can go get that. Um, and get it all in color, and you can read about Super Wizard Stardust, and you can see the giant yep. floating heads in space and the bug eyes. Just I mean, the, I, I, crazy I, I, stuff. let me just say this. Th his art style is unlike anything yes. you will probably see or have seen. And you can just go do a search for Fletcher Hanks on uh, the interwebs, on, onto the Googles, and just go yep. over to the image pages, and you will see, you know, result after result after result of stuff from his books. And it is it is very different. It is not something that you are likely to see. Uh, and ever you know, again. For the longest time, he was either super obscure or not really well known. And it, I think major spoilers have been going for two or three years before suddenly Fletcher Hanks became a thing on the Internet where people were yeah, suddenly yeah. talking about him. People recognize the genius like 60 years after the fact. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Neat. That's a that is an interesting number one. I will say that uh, <laughs> I think maybe his art is more interesting than maybe his writing, but that's OK. You know, this is Matthew's at that point list in the game. Right. And writing and art were kind of the same thing. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. 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 Listeners, that is our current list of top five comic book writers. What's on your list? There's a couple of places you can let us know. First of all, drop us an email podcast at Majorspoilers.com. Go into the comment section over at Majorspoilers.com, and you can have your top five comic book writers uh, forever attached to the post. So in decades from now, hello, future people, when they come in to see what uh, other people thought, they will see your post, Tom6225, and uh, we'll see, oh, these are the ones that, that Tom6225 said were his favorites. Or maybe you just want to talk with other people about our list and your list in real time. Like I said at the top of the show, head over to our Discord server, link in the show notes, and you can uh, join some fantastic people over there and share your top five, suggest top fives, and a whole lot more. Why? Because everybody loves a list, and we will talk with you soon. This podcast is copyright 2019 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.